Revelation 12:17 And the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who kept the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus and he stood on the sand of the sea Revelation 13 And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with 10 horns and 7 heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its head and the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and we'll look at Revelation 13. Lord, um, thank you for this uh, challenging but revealing book where you pull back the curtain and through a series of images give us a heaven's eye view that stoke and shape our imagination. Help us to hear from your word and uh, interpret by your word as we look at these things. Uh, we need your help. There's been a lot of fanciful things around this book. Uh, help us to be wise and help us to be receptive to what you have to say to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, as Ben mentioned, we have several of our youth, middle school and high school, on a, on a retreat. Part of the reason that the youth go on a retreat is to kind of reconnect with this reality that they are a, they are a kingdom of people together. It's not just youth from our church, but from our denomination, churches around the city, that these kids, they, they exist as a kingdom, but then they exist in their lives, dispersed in their schools and their city, much like you. We gather together. On a Sunday morning, we worship the same Lord. We come to the communion table together. But that's not where we stay. We're not here on tomorrow morning, right? We're going to be dispersed back into our lives uh, as the, the representatives of this kingdom. And we say as a foretaste of the coming fullness of the kingdom. And uh, Revelation, part of the goal of Revelation is to give us lenses to see our life in new and fresh ways. Now, if you... Uh, so I see, I know some of you had corrective surgery, some of you wore contacts, I wore glasses. I, re I got glasses when I was in third grade. So if you got glasses when you were young, you might have had the experience I did that I didn't know I needed glasses until I was looking with my mom and said, hey, what does that sign say? And she's like, you can't read that? I'm like, no. She's like, okay, <laughs> we need to go to the eye doctor. It was just normal for me to not to know that you could see the leaves on trees. I didn't know. It was always the same. 
And it requires somebody else to say to me, you know, you need a new set of lenses to see this world by. The book of Revelation is God saying to us, friends, I love you. You need a new set of lenses by which to see this world, through which we look at this world, and Revelation is that, through a series of images that incite and excite our imagination, through which we look and see this world. And uh, this is, uh, passage ends, the last line that Teresa read there is, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So I would be a bad preacher if I didn't say the goal here is a call to faith and endurance. Right? This is a, you, you can't not preach like this is the, the point where it's going because it says this is a call. This is a call to faith and endurance of the saints. The last couple of weeks we have been, uh, this vision's been lifted up to us that we are in a world of spiritual conflict. Now that's not all that the world is, but there is spiritual conflict in this world. And if you're visiting with us today or newer, you need to know that we just talk about things as they come up in Scripture. Uh, I preached on Revelation a couple times before in 2006. So we're just kind of working our way through the book of Revelation. Uh, We don't talk about spiritual warfare all the time, but when it comes up in Scripture, and what comes up now is a lens that says this is an aspect of our world. We live in a world at war. Uh, when we were looking at Revelation 11 a few weeks ago, we saw the, the series of the seven trumpets, and it ended the last trumpet. Remember that was a we see Revelation takes us through cycles of history over and over and over again. The last trumpet ends with this phrase: Revelation 11:15, "The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever." And we say yes and amen. That is awesome. Praise God. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And that is a final summary statement. And those first Christians who heard this would say, yes, that is amazing. And they wake up the next morning and walk outside, and the Roman Empire is still in control of everything. And so that is aspirational. That is the future. But they and we would say yes, the kingdoms of this world has become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ, and Jesus reigns really, kind of, but not fully yet. I mean, he fully reigns, but it hasn't been worked out fully. And uh, as I was thinking about it, I was, that I was going to say this, listening to Ben praying, warning us against big words that we like just for word's sake, I'm, I'm, I, f- I feel some tension here. So I'm going to give you a couple of big words, but let them drive you to understanding, Okay. A couple of big theological words. We, we, uh, <laughs> um, maybe I shouldn't do this. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, admittedly, he said the same thing in the first service. It didn't register. I'm a little slow. We talk about two things here, the- big theological words, make you sound sophisticated, justify your seminary education. Um, we call it inaugurated eschatology like the inaugurated, oh, it's like nine syllables. Inaugurated eschatology means something is, the eschatology is like final things. Inaugurated is like, it's the beginning of the final things in that Christ has begun to reign. He's been resurrected. He's taken his throne and it's begun to reign. That the the final thing, the final chapter has been inaugurated, but it's not yet consummated. Consummated eschatology is when Christ returns and restores all things back to and beyond their original glory. That's what we're waiting for. Right now, we exist between the inauguration and the consummation of eschatology. 
Okay, so uh, that's kind of where we exist in the already, not yet, where Christ really is on the throne, but the fullness of those implications haven't been worked out yet. Right now, he reigns through the gospel and his people demonstrating the kingdom of God in their words and their deeds and by their way of life, uh, anticipating and being a picture of the coming kingdom. The call right now is for us to exist in the middle of that, in the already, but not yet, in a kingdom that is in a a world that's at spiritual war by enduring and resisting but not enduring through adopting the tools of the dragon and it's very hard we live in a world that and we'll talk about this in a second that just displays these tools of resistance and attack everywhere and we're called yes to endure yes to endure faithfully but to, to endure in the way of the lamb not in the way of the dragon Revelation 12, as we've seen for the last couple weeks, is this picture of the dragon who's revealed to be Satan, the devil, waging war on the male child who is Christ and the woman who gave him birth, who is Mary's a representative of that, but as in our call to worship, in the Old Testament, the faithful people of God were pictured as a woman who was barren, but who, because of the gospel, will have many spiritual offspring. So the faithful Israel is pictured as a woman all through the Bible. That theme is picked up in Galatians 4. So the woman is the church that the dragon seeks to make war on because he can't get to the sun. And then he goes off to make war on the offspring of the woman, which if you're in Christ, that is you. So you're actually in this passage in Revelation 12, 17. So, and the dragon, this is the end of the passage Taylor preached last week. The dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. That's you. So that's the invitation of Revelation. Say, adopt this lens for your life. You're in a world somehow that where the dragon is at spiritual war with the offspring of the woman. Sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's more covert, so be it. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So now today we see the first way that the dragon makes war. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So that's, what you have to know is in the original, there are no chapters, there are no verses, so there are no chapters and verse breaks. It's just the next sentence is, so, you know, he goes off to make war and he stood on the sand of the sea and I saw a beast rising out of the sea. So the picture here is Satan, the dragon, is about to go make war on the offspring, that's you, and out of the sea comes this beast that's about to do his bidding. Okay. Now we're going to get a picture of this beast. Uh, It's coming out of the sea. In the Old Testament, the sea is symbolic of chaos and evil and death and destruction. And given how many times people died on the sea in the Old Testament, it makes sense that that would become a symbol of chaos and evil and death and destruction. And remember Israel's history, they're led out of slavery in Egypt from Pharaoh, who is elsewise called the dragon, through the Red Sea. It doesn't, through evil, it doesn't touch them, but then it collapses on Pharaoh's army. So the beast comes forth to do his bidding in oppressing the people of God. The people of God who hear this originally, they know oppression. They've been oppressed. They're right now, they're under the boot of the Roman Empire, and they have a long history of stories of their ancestors who've been oppressed in these various ways by Egypt, uh, by lots of other places. Now, if you've been here for a while, we say we're not, you, we're not just making up stuff when we interpret the book of Revelation. 
We say there's a source we're using primarily to interpret Revelation, and that source is the Old Testament. Because that's what the original hearers would have used, the Old Testament. We're not just making up stuff. Oh, I wonder what the beast is. I think, whatever, you know, I think Walmart is beastly. It must be Walmart. It's just not, we're not making up, we're not unmoored, we're not making up stuff. So we say, is there any place in the Old Testament where the people of God were being oppressed and attacked and anything like what is going to be pictured here comes up? And the answer, why, yes, there is. In the book of Daniel, which is what a lot of Revelation draws from, Daniel chapter 7, the people of God have been carried off into exile by the Babylonians. And Daniel is going to give a vision of four successive kingdoms that will come and still they will replace each other but continue to oppress the people of God in some way. Now, historically, those kingdoms are probably Babylon, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. That's just a historical note. I want you to listen how Daniel describes the beasts and the the details, okay? So it's Daniel 7. You can turn there if you have a Bible. If not, you can just listen. I'll hit the highlights. Daniel declares, so this is hundreds of years before this, but this is woven into their understanding of things. Daniel declared... Verse 2, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion. It didn't say it was a lion. It's like, it's like a lion, I guess. It looks like a lion. Then down in verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. Verse 6, after this I looked, and behold, another beast like a leopard. Verse 7, after this I saw a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful. It was, un- it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, it's, in its horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great blasphemies. Okay, we're not going to get into what, any of what that passage meant. You can do an Old Testament survey course on that if you want, but I just wanted you to hear the details that came up there. The beast comes out of the sea. One's like a lion, a bear, a leopard. One has ten horns, and eventually it is speaking great blasphemies. That's in the background. Revelation 13.1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. So this beast is a combination of something. One, it kind of looks like the dragon from Revelation 12 with its heads and everything. But then, right, it's like a leopard, a bear, a lion. It is a compendium of this vision from Daniel 7. Put all together. All these ruling oppressive empires put all together. Or we could say, like, maybe those ruling oppressive empires from Daniel 7 is just representing part of that thing, which is the beast of the sea. Now, what is the beast of the sea? Well, I, I pulled this out, this little tool from the game. Anybody know the game this is from? Old school, come on, child of the 80s here. Outburst. You remember this game? It's a, it's a, it's a group game. 
Yeah, right. So uh, you, it's, it's, a, it's a group game. So you, uh, you know, here's the, the, the clue is cities that begin with A, and your team is shouting it out, right? And you don't know what's on the card. The answers are here, but they're, they're shrouded in this red background. And so you slide it into the magic, you know, screen, and you can see it, you know, Albuquerque, Amarillo, Aspen, Ann Arbor, Atlantic City, Atlanta, Allentown, Albany, Anchorage, like, oh, great. And you, the team goes by, and you click them off as they get in, all that kind of stuff. But you need the secret decoder screen to find the, the answers. Like, that is how we're tempted to look at the book of Revelation. Like, the, the clue is the beast of the sea. We're like, okay, it is. Here we go. Nero, Anthony Fauci, Donald Trump, the Russian Empire, all this kind of stuff, right? Okay. Um, that, I, I don't know if we do that because, like, it's just better fiction. It's better speculation. A lot of TV guys will just make stuff up, not connect to the Old Testament. Okay. My encouragement is for us to simply see the beast of the sea as, ready? The beast of the sea. <laughs> it's an image. It's a picture. We're invited to lift up and see the world through. Now, what, it is, what is it, the picture? of? It's a, it's a picture of organized human power, which is what the Greek Empire was, the Roman Empire was, all the empires. Organized human power that the dragon subverts in its war on the offspring of the woman. Now, I realize it would sell better if I could just say Anthony Fauci is the beast of the sea or Donald Trump or Joe Biden. Okay, if I said that, it could make a case. It could somehow make the Hebrew letters of Donald Trump's name be 666. You'd like, oh, that's so cool. You'd buy my book. The problem is that's really not what it's talking about. It's just drawing on this Old Testament imagery of consolidated earthly power the, the dragon uses to wage war on the people of God. So we can say, um, we are, in fact, I put it in the, the top of your insert here. We are called to faithful endurance against earthly powers subverted by the dragon in its war on the woman, but not an endurance that uses the dragon's weapons. We use the weapons, weapons of the lamb instead, which is the gospel. So the sea, uh, like as I said, biblically, it's a, it's a place of chaos. Also, I, I kind of, I'm about 80% on this. If you get to Revelation 17, you have this picture of this another character we'll get to in a few weeks called the, the, the whore that is Babylon. <laughs> and she sits on the beast, which is on the waters. And then it says in Revelation 17, 15, the waters are people from every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. Perhaps saying that the waters aren't just a place of chaos and evil. It is this massive humanity out of which these powers come in that the dragon isn't putting something there. He's just drawing out what's already there. Like humanity, over time, we're not so great. Now, if you see, like, the, the, you know, how many people have died in warfare and injustice over the years. Like, we have a bad track record of being people. Right? And so maybe this is saying the, the dragon just uses what's there and draws it out. Um, in some ways, people always say we get the government that we deserve. Yeah, maybe that's the case. Maybe that's what this is saying. The beast of the sea, then, is this dynamic of human power, often consolidated in state form, but not always, that uh, or, or other organized movements used against the people of God. Now, a lot of other people get caught up in that as well, washed away, destroyed by, these, by state governments and other human power. That's fine. The goal of the dragon is to go against the people of God. And through history, this has sometimes been stronger and weaker, more obvious, less obvious. Sometimes it's entire governments. Sometimes it's, it's uh, one person who can consolidate power in a government. 
It could be other organized movements. We've already seen in Revelation 2, the church in Thyatira couldn't buy or eat anything because the Roman trade guilds, not the government, the trade guilds unified against them. So another type of movement of people of consolidated earthly power. Uh, For its original hearers, this undoubtedly was the Roman Empire and the Emperor Domitian, and maybe more famously before him, Nero. Terrible. Near absolute power. But I want us to, even at that, I want to step back and say, don't hear what I'm not saying. Government, for instance, is not in itself evil or bad. It is given by God for the good of humanity. In, Re- in fact, Revelation 13.4 says the government or the ruler is given for the good. It's, gi- it's, a, it's a common grace gift given for the good of the world. It's, gi- it's supposed to steward this calling, but oftentimes, maybe every time, eventually it gets corrupted. And it takes to itself a godlike position and power. Verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed Where have we seen that before? And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Remember back in Revelation 5, Taylor preached his sermon back on December 11th, where the the vision was a lamb standing as though he had been slain. Remember Taylor told the, the story about having to go to Ethiopia and kill the goat because he was the visitor. He had to slit the throat of the goat named Derek. Why would you name the goat? I don't know. Did you do that or did somebody else do that? Oh, man. Okay, so, but the point, his point was there's a lot of blood. It was obvious that the, that the goat was dead. It was obvious that the, the, the lamb, Christ, had been crucified, right, killed, and then he was resurrected. So the lamb standing as though it had been slain is a picture of the resurrected Jesus. But here, one of the heads of the beast of the sea has this mortal wound which has been healed. It's the same language as, as if it had been slain. It's the same like, Greek construction and everything. It's a picture of like, wow, it seems like this thing called the beast of the sea, at least part of it has this supernatural power to come back over and over and over again. The, these kingdoms of man, this organized uh, uh, power against God's people seems resilient. Uh, what we have here is an introduction of something that the beast of the sea seems to be a counterfeit savior. There's several things in here. One is like he has the same, same exact phraseology used for the lamb. He receives power from the dragon as the son receives power from the father. He has authority over every tribe, tongue, language, and nation later in the passage as Jesus draws people out of every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. So the beast is a counterfeit savior promising what the savior actually delivers, which maybe is why some people are so passionate about politics. Because if you don't have Jesus, the government may be a pretty good second savior. Maybe money is, whatever. But, like, it's a pretty good second savior. Think about, think about what consolidated human power offers. Protection. Provision. Um, power. Being on the winning side. Being on the right side. The right side of history. All this kind of stuff. It's what it offers. It's a counterfeit savior. All G- Jesus gives all that freely. The government, in a counterfeit way, or consolidated power of people, can offer that in a counterfeit way. And it seems overwhelming. 
That's why people say in verse 4, who can fight against it? Keeps coming back over and over and over again. This is, and when we see the government with this kind of authority, we say this has to occupy all of our attention and all of our time and all of our fidelity. And I want us to see here, it's like, this is pictured as something authoritative. And it can be very powerful. Right? Governments rise and fall. Movements um, come and go. Movements of people come and go. And what it happens in this is like the beast rises again and again and again and again. Just because one government falls and another takes its place, it doesn't mean that it's, it's just the beast coming back over and over and over again. And when we look at government particularly, now, again, don't hear what I'm not saying. When we look at government in a way that's a savior instead of something to steward what God has granted it for, as something for the good of all, we are worshiping the beast. And behind that is the dragon. Right? The goal, part of the goal of the dragon is for the people of God to say, I see that Savior named Jesus, but this one is really good. This, I know my allegiance is here, but I, this allegiance here is very attractive. And for the first Christians, they live in the, under the boot of the Roman Empire, which probably, I mean, it's an argument, but in history, probably the most dominant empire in the history of the world may be rivaled by the, the empire of Genghis Khan several hundred years later. It's overwhelming in this little band of Christians who is weak, that has no earthly power, and they're unknown except that they're persecuted. Surely they would say, who is like the beast and who can stand against it? And for them and for us, Jesus would say, that would be me. I stand against the beast. You have no human power. You have no authority. But you have me, and that is all you need. I stand against the beast in your stead. Verse 5. And the beast was giving a, given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Now, those who dwell in heaven is a picture of the people of God, of the church. As we saw in Revelation 11, it would be those who have died in heaven, but those who are also resurrected with Christ, that is you. So this is a, a, against the church, against God's people, for 42 months. 42 months, we've already seen this, is a number, a theological number. It has theological significance. Elsewhere, that same time period is called 1,260 days, which is in the Jewish calendar, each month has 30 days, 42 times Anyway, you get it, 42 times 30. It's sometimes called three and a half years. It's sometimes called a time, times, and half a time, which is another way to say three and a half years. The point is, it's the time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming, seen from all these different angles. That's why it uses different phrase, phrases. That's where we live in those 42 months where the beast has been given authority, right? He's by the Lord. He's been allowed to do this to pursue the people of God, to be subverted by the dragon, to pursue the people of God. And during this time, the beast says, off, uh, utters haughty and blasphemous words. 
Those are words of uh, taking godlike titles and power to itself. The emperor at the time, Emperor Domitian's title was Our Lord and Our God. You know, that seems a bit uh, over the top. Maybe if he was called himself Yahweh, that would be even worse. But he wanted to be called and demanded to be called sometimes Our Lord and Our God. And in fact, in, when you were in Rome, not in the outskirts, but in Rome, you had to. Earthly power tends to take to itself a godlike authority, a godlike non accountability to others. Now, that doesn't happen the same way everywhere, but I have to think, like, okay, just even in our own government, even in the politicians you like and vote for, don't they kind of act like God? <laughs> Isn't that the temptation? To think, like, I'll just do stuff and make the next generation pay for it. Why? Because I'm not accountable to them. Like, it's 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 accountability-free temptation. Lord Acton, the British historian, famously said, power tends to corrupt. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. You heard that phrase? Power tends to corrupt. Absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. He was saying that in response to a Catholic cardinal. Now, Lord Acton was a, a, a faithful Christian Catholic man, saying that in response to a cardinal who was saying, we should judge popes and kings differently. We should give them more latitude. And Lord Acton's like, no way. <laughs> no. Because power tends to corrupt, and absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. And then he said, this is great, he said, there is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. There's no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it, meaning like, oh, you get a free dispensation because you are the pope, or you are the king, or you are the pastor, or you are the dad, or you are the governing official, or you are the mom, or you are the boss, or whatever. The office doesn't sanctify the holder of it. What is happening now in these 42 months for us? Right? You were in Revelation 12, 17. You're in here where it says the 42 months. That's verse 5. Organized earthly power in multiple forms is being, will be, and it, it has been, is being, and will be corrupted in some way to oppose the people of God. Sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's covert. The point is that the dragon seeks uh, to make war on the people of God. And uh, when I, just, I, I was thinking this week of two things in my own life where I was a co-participant in this subversion in some way. And I sort of started at this beginning saying, some of this, I think the implications of this will make us a little uncomfortable. You know, anytime a pastor knows, look, if you talk about money, if you talk about sex, if you talk about power, you're going to get an email. So, um, here we go. We're talking about power. I grew, just because of where I came up and where I grew up and when I started really following Jesus in the mid-90s, early 90s in rural Illinois and the community I came from, it was unthinkable for me. Now, just just go with me to the the end of this, okay? It was unthinkable for me that a Christian would be anything other than a Republican, which is unthinkable. Conservative values, whatever, whatever. Okay, okay. all right, I didn't even think about it. Did anybody say that? I don't know, maybe, but it just was in, in the water, like it was inculcated into it. Okay, so that's fine, great, got it. Christian, Republican, yeehaw, God and country, 
They go off to college and meet some very faithful, following Jesus, believing the Bible, African-American friends, who actually don't have that <laughs> uh, predisposition. They, were grow- they grew up in a, con- a context where it said uh, a real Christian would be a Democrat. And so pretty early on, I realized, well, this is wrong. Something's wrong here. So obviously, there's something askew. Um, so this still happens today, right? It still happens today. And I just talk real honestly to us, parents especially, especially kids are on the retreat, the middle school kids and high school kids. We've got to resist unintentionally wedding our politics to our faith. If we take the core, the Jesus, the gospel core, and add a secondary thing like, oh, your political affiliation or your denominational affiliation or whatever, I don't know, a secondary or tertiary thing, this way of studying the Bible and doing a quiet time, and we, we wed it to the gospel, to Christ. We've taken our faith and we've added like this freight on top of it. It's, trying to, it's carrying something else. And we wed it together, and we wed it together, and we wed it together. True Christians are really Republicans. True Christians are really Democrats. True Christians study the Bible this way. True Christians are really Presbyterian, right? They're really PCA. They're really whatever. That's our denomination. Uh, if you wed those things together long enough, and they get intertwined, let's fast forward to 15 years, and one of your kids says, you know what? <clears throat> I'm not so sure about your politics, Dad. I'm walking away from that. What have you taught them to do? to walk away from what it's wedded to. They walk away from the faith. Uh, and that's, that's from a human perspective, right? And I think a lot of these things, so right now what's fashionable is to say, use the word deconstruction for the old word apostasy, which is walking away from the faith. I think it's sometimes if you dig down, what you see is people actually are rejecting the freight, but they've been taught that it's one and the same. And so can I plead with you n- not to do this? This is a huge win for the dragon. Which does he, he doesn't even care what political party it is. Right? The goal is to, re- to, to, to have the freight and the faith wed together. That's the dragon's goal. We must resist this. Now, if you can't conceive of the fact that a Christian could be another political party than you, please come and talk to me. Okay? If you, if you can't conceive of that, I want to gently suggest to you, okay, it's not a gentle suggestion at all. I want to suggest to you that you're just seeing things through the lens of the beast of the sea. Real Christians vote for this person, not for this person. Okay, hold on. That's the beast of the sea. Beware. 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 I would encourage you to think about your political affiliation like the baseball team you root for. Right? I'm a St. Louis Cardinals fan. You know, if you're a baseball fan, you realize that's the second best franchise ever in history behind the Yankees. But um, uh, I would not be inclined to say a true Christian will root for the Cardinals. Right? I'm not going to say that. And you say, okay, the, look, the political affiliation is more important than that. Okay, fine. But in, in comparison, it's actually not much closer, given the kingdom of God rules overall. That's the first part of the way I've been co-opted in my youth and probably, probably even communicated that in my early days as a youth pastor. Unintentionally, I didn't even have to. You see how subversive the enemy is? Uh, the second thing is, uh, you know, I came from a very patriotic hometown. Really did. And I was reading this great thing in 
C.S. Lewis's little book, The Four Loves, about patriotism. There's a good kind of patriotism, right? Um, a patriotism that just loves home because it's home. He says, of, of course, this patriotism is not the least bit aggressive. It asks only to be left alone. It becomes militant only to protect what it loves. Okay. Uh, in any mind, which is a, any imagination, it produces a good attitude toward foreigners. Now, he's saying this as a British, as, a, as an Englishman. How can I love my home without coming to realize that other men, no less rightly, love theirs? Once you have realized that Frenchmen like uh, coffee and croissants just as much as we like bacon and eggs, why, good luck to them and let them have it. The last thing we want is to make everything else just like our own. Uh, it, it would not be home unless it were different. But then he says there is also a type of patriotism which can be demonic. And that is a patriotism which unconsciously denies itself, which says this isn't patriotism, this is just truth. This is just the way it is, the way that must be defended at all cause, and at all costs. Um, it's a love for the country that justifies a blind adherence to it, that won't see its deficiencies and frailties and failures, that must be defended at all costs. A love that requires unquestioned allegiance. Okay? Now, we are rightly horrified when we see old videos of the... Um, of the Hitler Youth Brigade, of 14-year-old men and women marching, giving the Nazi salute with their hand, and in German reciting Nazi uh, doctrine. We're rightly disturbed by that, and we should be. Unquestioned allegiance to this movement. We are rightly disturbed when we see videos even today of the, the Chinese Youth Socialist League of 12-year-olds learning the, the communist, the socialist Chinese salute, reciting the socialist youth anthem every single day. We're rightly disturbed by that call for unquestioned allegiance to that consolidated human power. We somehow are less disturbed when we see five-year-olds taking their hand putting it over their heart, and being taught to say, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. I'm not saying patriotism is a bad thing. Don't hear, and don't hear what I'm not saying. Am I saying that uh, democracy is the same thing as fascism and socialism? No, of course I'm not saying that. Do I think that... that Democracy and free markets have tapped into a certain common grace of genius that helps a lot of people? I do. I do. But I am also saying that the dragon doesn't care if our first allegiance is to fascism, socialism, or democracy, as long as it's not to Jesus. I'm thankful for those who have given themselves in defense of the country because I like my home. Our home is not the kingdom of God. This country is not the kingdom of God. Our home is the kingdom of God. Dean Fleming, a theologian, writes in his book, The Foretaste of the Future. I put this in here. 
The line between patriotism and idolatrous nationalism isn't always easy to draw, especially when Christian Americanism seems so normal. For Christians in Asia Minor, so in the first century, civil religion combined Roman ideology and pagan religiosity. Therefore, it was easy to see. For, Christian, for Christians in the United States, civil religion blends American ideology with a form of Christian spirituality. This makes American civil religion all the more seductive and the worship of the beast even harder to resist. Am I saying patriotism is bad? Not after a form. There's one kind that's okay. But boy, that's a very fine line. And the call, remember here, in verse 9 it says, he who has an ear, let him hear. You have to take this, wrestle it to the ground, apply it to yourself, and lift this up as a lens through which we see our world. Right? And just for the record, I, don't, I say this often, but like, um, I believe in a Christian nation as long as we're clear that that's the church and the people of God and not any country called the United States of America, right? So there's all this conversation about is America a Christian nation. I'm going to just say that's patently impossible. There's one people of God. It is those who are bought by the blood of Christ and united to him. We exist in a country. I mean, we can say well, there's, you know, we have a laws taken from the Scripture. That's fine. I don't know if that makes it a Christian nation. Please don't say that. Um, as long as something else is first or equal to allegiance with Jesus, the dragon wins. That's what this is lifting us up and inviting us to see. Whether that's a nation or any other movement we're part of. If it gets our first allegiance, it's the dragon. It's the beast of the sea. And then therefore, there's no, re- reason, there's no need for outright persecution. There's no need. Because he's already subverted the whole thing. But sometimes there is outright persecution. Verse 7, also it, the beast, was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them, and authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So sometimes there is outright persecution. Some of our family, our spiritual family, is experiencing that right now. Certainly has happened over the ages. It may happen to us going forward. I don't know that the, the beast will do that. Oftentimes he does not need to. Because we're already subverted and allegiance is to, first allegiance to Christ is taken away. Uh, it's so powerful that in some way it says here everyone who is not a follower of Jesus eventually gives allegiance to some human authority. And we're going to see next week that that includes like the, the uh, radical individualism. That's just a, that's an ideology <laughs> uh, that we're giving allegiance to. Well, more on that next week. Verse 9, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. We apply this to ourselves. This is the main application of the book of Revelation. Listen, lift up this vision, and look at life through it. Does this apply to you? Seek the Lord. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. This is simply saying that for some, it could be very bad. It could be captivity. It could be death. Part of the reason Taylor went to Ethiopia this year, not last year, to visit our mission partner, Michael Granger, in uh, Trinity Church in Addis Ababa, is because the, the year before, there was such conflict that Christians were threatened, and Taylor didn't want to go and die, which I'm cool with that. In fact, Michael sent his wife, Kanan, and their kids back to the States because he did not know if he would live through the conflict. Okay? It's hard for us to imagine that this is our brother and sister in Christ. There's no mission partner. 
Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. This is the call. We stand against the beast of the sea, but not with the tools of the dragon. We do so with the tools of the lamb. How do we do that? First, we recognize, as it says in Ephesians 6, we're actually never fighting against people. There's some dark power behind any evil thing on this earth. Satan. Read Roman, or Ephesians 6. But more importantly, sometimes if we live long enough in a world of threat and hostility and cynicism and criticism and longing for power and anxiety and fear of not having power and railing against people and basically talk radio, right? It's like this is, I think, basically um, politicized talk radio, just over and over and over again. This way, this is the way of the dragon. And we think this must be the way. The way we stand against things is be vitriolic and harsh and hostile and unloving and critical and sarcastic and we make memes about it and we do all this kind of stuff and yada, yada, yada. That is the way of the world and the way of the kingdom that is passing away. We are not of that kingdom, friends. We are of a kingdom that endures a different way. And in the chapter before this, in Revelation 12, we had a verse that gives us a great matrix for how to endure. Revelation 12, 11 said they overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink back from death. And I just want to close by letting that be a matrix for us of a faithful endurance. First, by the blood of the lamb. That is the shed blood of Jesus for his people on the cross that makes you righteous. Christ, by his own giving his life, makes us right. There is no party, no consolidated power of man, movement or government that will make us right. We are on the right side. Not because we're right, but because Jesus is and he brings us into him. That shed blood of Christ makes us right. He brings us not just into, uh, into the, the club, he brings us into the family of a kingdom of which his father is king. And we're already part of a kingdom right now. That is, that is and will come full. He has taken his throne and begun to reign. That means we can be patient. Things aren't like we would like it right now, okay? We fight to picture the foretaste of the coming kingdom. That's why we fight to love our neighbor and to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly because the coming kingdom is full of justice and mercy and humility. So we live that now. And even though things aren't like we would like, we have the power of the resurrected Christ to teach us that we can be patiently enduring in that direction. And even if persecution or difficulty does come, we walk with the Savior who knows how to help because he's even shed his, shed his blood to love his enemies. He knows how to help us when we've been criticized, mocked, shamed. He knows how to help us even when we face death because he's faced it. The shed blood of Christ secures us, but also gives us a model for engagement. Jesus gives his life in sacrificial service for his family. Jesus loves even his enemies, right? We have this, shed, the shed blood of Christ teaches us we can, we can love our enemies even when they are our enemies. We can serve them. Jesus refused the, the ways of power of this world. Remember Satan's temptation in the wilderness when he tempted Jesus with glory and power and, say, and Jesus said, no, I have the word of God. 
Remember when James and John suggested to Jesus that this unbelieving city, here's how they were going to evangelize the city. <laughs> like, should we call fire down from heaven and destroy it? And Jesus basically says, what are you guys thinking? You are not paying attention. Right? Jesus comes in in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a stallion. He is humble. Uh, in the book, The Way of the Dragon, The Way of the Lamb, Jamin Goggin and Kyle Strobel write, I would suggest this book, by the way, if you want to get it. Uh, where will we place our faith? The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb? Hence the sermon title. We march in the procession of one kingdom or another. The Way of the Dragon is fixated on the spectacular, obsessed with recognition and validation, intoxicated by fame and power. The Way of the Lamb is committed to worship, pursues God in the ordinary, and is faithful in hiddenness. The dragon devours and dominates while the lamb humbly and sacrificially serves. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. They overcame him by the word of their testimony. This is the gospel word, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is, this is the power of the kingdom of God. That message to which God freely binds himself and through which he works in this world. The message that teaches you in this room, if you don't have human authority and you don't have human power, so what? You don't need it. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of the living God who is power. It is this message that we carry. It is this message that moves the kingdom forward without coercive power and without propaganda. If you remember how Jesus uh, announced the kingdom of God, it just says, he announced the kingdom of God. He didn't say, and you really need to believe it. Let me show you my muscles. He's like, the kingdom is here. Come into it if you want. That's what he did. What is the disposition of those who live by the shed blood of Christ and hold to the gospel message? What is the disposition? They did not love their life even when faced with death. Even in the face of death, they loved well and used the tools of the Lamb who had faced death for them. Jesus went before. God has called us into this world to be a kingdom in this world, not separate from it, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our favorite restaurants and breweries, in the library, with people as a foretaste of the coming kingdom. And we are continually energized by this one who's gone before us in Jesus. Part of the way we bring that to ourselves on a weekly basis is we come to the table. But we don't come naively. We realize we're coming and being invited to a vision of a world that's at war, but we're not alone. We have great resource in Christ. And if you're in Christ by faith, we're going to invite you to come to the table. If you're a follower of Jesus, uh, I'm going to pray and invite you to go to the back.